Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, the last podcast of the year. How is everything going? Everything is going pretty well. You are right. We are wrapping up the year. Looking ahead to the next one. Want to thank everybody who has been listening to the podcast. We really appreciate y'all. We hope that you find it valuable. Uh, We certainly feel like we've come a long way as podcast host over the last year. It's really only been about a year, a little over a year since we started it. So uh, thanks for bearing with us as we work on technology, conversation flow, and the like. Uh, We appreciate you. Yes. And you know what? If you want to make 2022 a better year, the best thing you could probably do, in my opinion, maybe you should give this as your your Christmas New Year gift. Join the Patreon group. Join our book club, our mastermind group. Get these podcasts early. Get inside baseball stuff, behind the scenes uh, looks at what we're doing, what's going to be next, all that good stuff. Come listen to some of the best authors in the world. If you enjoyed our yearly end of the year best books list guess what several of those people came or are coming to talk for our um our patreon book club so get on board it is you can join at www.patreon.com slash the growth equation all right with that let's dive into the main topic today which is the six big things that are on our mind heading into 2022. Well, the first one was a big thing on our mind heading into 2021, and uh, it still is, which is COVID-19. Now, COVID-2022. Steve, where are you at with this? It's clearly still a thing. Uh, As of this recording... Omicron, the new variant, is looming. Um, the best analogy that I heard from Omicron is that it's like a big tropical storm that's brewing in the ocean, and everyone is on the beach wearing their ponchos. The winds are blowing. Reporters are covering it, and we have no idea if it's going to fizzle out and be a Category 1 or if it's going to hit us and be a Category 5. And people want certainty. And as of this recording, we have no idea. There are some early signs that it's looking more like a category one or two, but viruses evolve. Who knows? All right. I, I as someone who has uh, lived most of his life on the on the on the coast in Houston, I love the tropical storm hurricane analogy, um, and it's fitting too because whenever tropical storm and hurricanes start brewing you get the media going nuts with the guy on the beach um you know making it seem like the world is ending so that's a perfect analogy i think you know where i am is i'm very thankful i'm thankful that we have vaccines i'm thankful that they have proven largely effective and safe um and i'm thankful we're at we're at that spot where there is something that we can do. I'm thankful that, you know, we have some decent therapeutics that help as well if you get get the 
disease. I'm frustrated by a whole heck of a lot of things surrounding it. Um, but at this point in my life, since it's gone on from 19, you know, to 20, to 21, to 22, whatever it is, uh, I, I think, I think I'm in that phase where I'm trying not to let other people piss me off and just kind of do what's best and hope that those around me and family and friends are doing good things and taking care of themselves. I'd be right there with you with one big exception. And uh, that is our three and a half year old, almost four. So too young to be vaccinated in a population where as far as we know, COVID is very, very mild. That said, he gets COVID. He's out of school for at least two weeks. Anyone in his class gets COVID. The school closes his classroom for two weeks. Uh, it's not the end of the world, but living on that edge of is he going to be out of school for two weeks? You know, it's not the best. And then there is a part of me that, of course, worries that, well, if he gets COVID, will he get sick? And probabilistically, the chances of him getting acutely sick are super small on par with RSV around the flu. But some of the long term stuff we just have no idea about. You know, how's a three and a half year old kid supposed to express brain fog? They probably can't. And is that the kind of thing that then sets the kid back six months in learning and development and sleep and all these things? So I'm almost right there with you. What I wrote to someone this morning that is a coaching client, it's a physician that was just expressing his frustration with the whole freaking hoopla and circus that has become COVID is that once Theo is vaccinated, I'm going to go about life completely normally as I did before COVID. The one exception will be I'll wear a mask indoors um, to protect vulnerable populations that perhaps can't be vaccinated or who are elderly and the, the vaccine efficacy might not be as strong year round. And it's just not that hard to wear a surgical mask when you're indoors at certain places. Um, so that's how I think about it. I think that the some of the hysteria on the very risk averse private school needing to wear masks outside, even though there's not a single recorded case of COVID that spread outside, short of in a sporting environment. And even then, I think there's like a handful worldwide. You know, that stuff's absurd. But more absurd to me is still the pushback against vaccines that is very real. My client sent me this, presumably after seeing the news that Joe Rogan had on some doctor and two hours and 20 minutes of nonstop vaccine conspiracy. And um, that stuff is really frustrating, for sure. It still gets at me. I think that it's just so bizarre that uh, we have this situation where there's this virus that truly is quite deadly for a large proportion of the population. Sure, it's one to 3% mortality rate, but there aren't too many infectious things that have mortality rates that high in this day and age. And, um, you know, imagine that if someone said, oh, yeah, and then they're going to have a vaccine, which basically takes your risk of dying and hospitalization close to zero. And like 30 to 40 percent of the population is like, no. And um, 
that's just crazy. In in the rationale too. Well, oh, there's an FDA warning on it. Well, guess what? There's an FDA warning on every single medication there is. Some of the safest medications that people have been taking for years have FDA warnings. So I, I, I still get frustrated by the straw man arguments. And I think if I had a kid that was vaccinated, or if I didn't have a kid, I would just say, you know, to each their own, this might become a selection event. And it's terrible. And I feel bad for people that are brainwashed and uneducated. Um, but yeah, I just am over it. Let it all out, Brad. Let it all out. No. So here's 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 what I'm really concerned about. And I promise this isn't going to be the COVID podcast, but I think this is important dialogue to have is on an individual level. I think I'm I'm at that point, as I said, where it's like I'm just living my normal life as a vaccinated person and no, no one or, you know, no one around me who's uh, not vaccinated, all that stuff. So live a normal life, whatever. From a societal standpoint, what concerns me is not really COVID. I think it's going to run its way on on a virus. And unfortunately, we are where we are. And like, there's nothing that I think is going to change in the next, you know, year or whatever, people's minds, etc. I'm more worried societally about where we are in terms of accepting, understanding, thinking, um, uh, in terms of scientific accuracy and then also conspiracies. So we exchanged some texts earlier and it's kind of astonishing. Um, the path this kind of like anti-vaccine route has, has taken largely thanks to one doctor in the late 1990s, Andrew Wakefield, who like put out a fraudulent study on MMR vaccine that blew up anti-vax and then 23, 24 years later, we're seeing like the ramifications of like doubt, conspiratorial stuff, fraud and science, like having a impact on a global scale. And I think that is the most concerning thing around this whole COVID thing, you know, last couple of years for me is like, okay, what does that look like going forward? Like, are we going to be a society that is, you know, more conspiratorial that doesn't like trust expertise in anything that doesn't put value on those who have spent years, decades, like in the trenches researching it. Um, and that, that is, that's the more concerning thing to me because it makes me think like, gosh, like any sort of challenge we face is going to be really difficult. And it also like, from an existential standpoint, makes me think we're kind of losing our grip on and our acceptance of like a shared reality, which is a kind of dark place to go. Yeah. Losing is generous. I think lost. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, all in all, I'm hopeful. I'm looking forward to the data on vaccines in the youngest cohort into hopefully having my family fully vaccinated. Um, and it will just be very interesting to see how it plays out with those choosing not to get vaccinated. And if this virus evolves in a way that it becomes less lethal, it will be fine. And if it randomly mutates a few times and becomes quite dangerous, um, then it won't be fine.
at least for a subset of the population. Um, and, you know, we got some emails after our newsletter a few weeks ago where we mentioned some pseudoscience, bro science, anti-vax, you know, the, the, the bullseye or the intersection of those three things about myocarditis and someone having a issue with a stroke, I believe it was, in the two weeks after they got a vaccine. And it's really hard because I think if you're that person, of course, you're going to attribute to the vaccine or look back. But the truth is there's a baseline rate of strokes in the general population. And there's a baseline rate of myocarditis. And if you have millions of people getting vaccinated, some of those millions of people are going to have strokes. They're going to have heart issues. They're going to have all kinds of things just because they would have had those things anyways. And the whole point of science is to be able to explore those base rates versus a change. And we have that science. It's been done. Something that you pointed out to me, Steve, on one of our many ranting phone calls is for this to be a conspiracy, it would have to be the biggest conspiracy in the history of our species. Global researchers in labs across the world would have to be all in on this together, all communicating about what they're going to say, when they're going to say it, how they're going to say it. So could it be that conspiracy? I'm a scientific thinker, so of course it could. What's the probability of that? I don't know. What's the probability of me getting hit by lightning on a sunny day in Asheville? Yeah, you know, I I think um, <laughs> that that's the you know, as someone who's who spent not a lot of time, but a little bit of time in in inside you know research labs. I think that's the most frustrating part of this whole thing to me, is like it's really a disservice to the like literal thousands and thousands of people who do good work, do good research, do independent work, you know, replicate studies, all sorts of stuff across not just the US, but the globe. And that's, that's what really gets, gets me here is most of our conspiratorial thinking is like US centric. But in this situation, like you expand out and you realize like, holy crap, like, how in the world if this was like some pharmaceutical plot or whatever it is whatever the thinking is how in the world are you going to get labs across the across the world to all kind of land in the same general area and as someone who's worked in labs like that would be impossible right and you're discounting all of these people who's you know aren't getting they're not getting like joe blow at so-and-so university isn't getting funding or kickbacks or whatever from this stuff. It's just, it's just kind of nuts. So as I said, like my greater concern is we've kind of meandered to this um, post-modernist world where nothing is real. And that allows us to have this like conspiratorial thinking take center fold because the, the stories are so good. And I think that's, not to go down this rabbit hole, but I think it's twofold is we have the world is super complex. It's we're oversaturated with information and we have a human desire to make stories or to have stories that make sense. 
So when we don't have, when we have too much uncertainty, too much unpredictability, too much information for most people to digest, understand, um, et cetera, then we get like this filling of this gap with conspiracies, which have good stories, but, you know, doesn't fit reality. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say, and it's a transition to our next topic which is what we call guru syndrome or the rise of people that become in the culture, these kind of like big influential people on big decisions that people make in their real lives and are sometimes and actually often just totally off the rails. So back to my boy, Joe Rogan, you know, are people just like, are they dumb? Are they sick of elites? Because again, he has this guy on that just keeps talking about how the answer is Regeneron and monoclonal antibodies and all these therapeutics and not vaccines and vaccines are terrible and all these other treatments are good. And I'm thinking like, A, they're made by the same companies. B, those other treatments have risk profiles that according to the science, are higher than the vaccines and they're less effective than the vaccines. C, like, how can the people that are listening not understand that this is just like picking a side and being tribalism and being provocative? You know, it's like if I told you, Steve, the makers of Tylenol are out to kill you, but you should take Motrin instead. And it's the same parent company. Like that's not the right analogy because they're different companies, but, and I get it. Like I get that there's a distrust of big pharma. What happened with Purdue pharmaceuticals in the opioid epidemic, that's real. But the alternative to that is actually like the NIH is truly government run healthcare where it's not a for-profit company. But here, these people aren't skeptical in that way. These people are just randomly picking something to champion and something not to and then coming up with this huge story. And it's it's real, man. Joe Rogan's podcast has millions of listeners. Um, I remember sending you a link. The number two selling book on Amazon worldwide was a book called Fauci Exposed, which had typos in the back jacket of the book. Are we just a dumb society? Is that what it is? And that's why these gurus can come to rise? Is it like your high school theory? where you think back to your high school and they're just a lot of kids were pretty dumb. And, and now I sound like the elitist, but I'm not. I'm like a public school kid. I'm not that bright. But again, how can someone possibly fall for this stuff? You know, I think we could spend an entire episode on this and maybe we will, maybe we won't. You guys, listeners, let us know if you want us to go down this rabbit hole or not. Um, I think I think our education, like I think you're, we're looking for a simple answer where there isn't one. So here's all the things that I think contribute. Our education system we've neglected for decades. Okay, we've figured out how to pay people very little for a very difficult job, and expect them and put more kids, you know, in the classroom for one teacher to handle. 
and we teachers have among the highest burnout rate within the first couple of years. So we lose good teachers. Um, so we've neglected and devalued education. I think that's number one. I think n- number two is we live at this weird intersection of society where uh, prior years we had experts, gatekeepers, people we looked up to in terms of disseminating knowledge who had real credentials, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then we moved into the internet world, then into the social media world, which democratized information to a degree, which can be good, but there's also some downsides to it in the sense that um, now anybody can proclaim they're an expert of anything. And I think that is is a real issue and then i think three is that people feel threatened as a whole as a society some of that threat is financially like seeing the big disconnect between the the elites and middle class or lower class or whatever you want to call it but also it's like a psychological and in, in case of we live in a world where it feels like you can never measure up, where you are constantly compared to everyone on Twitter, Instagram, whatever, job hunts, you're competing against everybody. You're constantly to- being told like you're not good enough. Um, and when you put people in that state where we're all playing like this status game, this like superficial status game, then what do people do? Like you go into survival mode, self-protection mode. And sometimes, and maybe this transitions to the guru, like that means like believing crazy things. That means like getting your relevance from being like the contrarian of all contrarians. That means, you know, being pushed further into your tribe or your group. Why? Because as we talk about all the time in belongingness, which is vital, like you need to feel like you belong, you're part of a community. Why? Because it gives you meaning. It also is a buffer against anxiety. Well, the downside of that is if you feel threatened and anxious and all of these things, you go look for a community to buffer against that existential threat and that anxiety well, that community sometimes is like the crazies, like conspiratorial world that like gives you this this sense that, oh, this makes sense. This makes the world add up. This makes this like gives me an answer to all of these like angst feeling things that I'm not sure of, especially under a covid threat, which like amplifies that that threat to the world. So to me, it, it makes total sense why. Unfortunately, why, you know, we have people who, you know, fall into this kind of world of disarray and craziness. Where do you think the all or nothing thinking comes from, though? Because, like, how did we avoid it? And presumably, if you're not a first time listener, listeners of this podcast, because, like, the elite stuff drives me nuts, too. Like, Gavin Newsom eating at the French laundry without a mask on after a mask mandate. Like, come on, there's. There's selection bias on the elite left for narcissistic idiots to run for office. And I'm not saying Gavin Newsom's an idiot, but I think you got to be pretty narcissistic to do something like that. 
So it's not like we're sitting here being like, oh, everything that the elite media or elite left says makes sense. But then how did we avoid like a wholesale going in the direction of Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro? And how big is that middle ground? It, on the internet, it seems small because the internet rewards, you know, provocative opinions. But either we're special. I mean, I always think you're special, Steve, but either, you know, what we're trying to do here is special and our listeners kind of are very fortunate not to have fallen for these extremes or these extremes are just really, really loud. And the vast majority of people are still thinking pretty competently in in the middle and the value of uh, ability to evaluate trade-offs and to say, hey, like between two options, neither is perfect, but this one seems to make more sense. And to do that across the board. Would I take a COVID vaccine for no reason at all? Of course not. But in the risk of COVID versus the risk of vaccinate, like it's an, it, it, I just, I think people really struggle. And maybe that gets back to the anxiety because like uncertainty breeds anxiety. Maybe that's it. Maybe you hit the nail on the head, but then it's like, so how do, how does the growth equation community stay Saying and continue to see clearly. I know that's something you've been thinking a lot is like seeing clearly because that's ultimately what this is about. Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, as I said, I think that uncertainty leads to anxiety and there's all sorts of uh, theories and well-researched stuff in psychology that um, points points to that, that, that connection there. Um, it's like uncertainty leads to anxiety. Anxiety leads to solving that. Look for closure anywhere we can, right? Um, how do we in the growth equation help avoid that? You know, I think it comes back to actually something that that we talked about briefly in our conversation on this podcast with Ryan Holiday, where we asked him essentially, how do you how do you not get lost on the internet? And like, how do you do that? Well, a little comes back to your book, Groundedness, to put the plug in, which we'll might talk about later. But it's also like you've got to think about these things and almost actively counteract them, right? Because the simple solution under threat is like go towards the easiest, quickest like thing that will close this anxiety off. I call it the, the reach for the candy moment, right? I'm hungry. I need some sugar. Candy's right there. I'm going to reach for it. But it takes like active energy and willpower to go, you know, reach for the vegetable or the fruit or the 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 brown rice, as your example that you give always always comes up. Um, and that takes effort. And I like to think that, you know, you and I have these conversations all the time offline. We have these in some email groups and some Zoom groups we're part of. And I'm not saying we're always right. And sometimes we drift off into other directions, but like we're actively working against losing our minds in either direction on the internet. Because I think what you see is the internet amplifies the extremes. The reality in the real world, if you talk to people, isn't that extreme. Like many people are rational regardless of where you stand on these issues, many people you can have conversations with in real life, but the internet kind of kills it. And then that seeps into the real world and people lose their minds and poison their brains and all that good stuff. 
Yeah. Do real things. Stay off the internet. Try to surround yourself with people that will hold you accountable to thinking clearly. Um, keep your identity separate from any belief. You know, fall in love with an idea, but don't marry it. I think that's another Steve Magnus original, but I think that's really important here. It it is. That's 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 one of my go tos, man. Yeah. O- only it, marry your your spouse. Don't marry. And certainly ideas. don't marry Joe Rogan or any other guru. Don't marry us. Hopefully you don't consider us gurus, but definitely don't marry us. You can talk to Caitlin and Hillary about that. They wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> they also keep us in check. So, yeah. All right. Well, have we said enough on gurus, which is basically, you know, these people that build a tribe, tend to polarize their opinion in one strong direction, sell a whole bunch of crap, um, maybe sometimes are true believers meaning they actually like drink their own Kool-Aid. Other times, even more cynical, they know that they're manipulating, but they're getting paid to do it um, in an ecosystem, the internet ecosystem that rewards all that, which gets back to making sure that you have some community that's off the internet. Um, anything else, Steve, that you'd like to add on the guru syndrome topic? Again, just to define that term for new listeners, it's, People that use a whole bunch of jargon and sciencey sounding terms and make everything super complex and polarize their opinion and build a tribe and um, suddenly they become like this almost cult leader. And I think that um, Joe Rogan, to me, is a prime example of that. I mean, anytime I go on the internet, on social media, on Twitter, and I make any, not even negative comment, just like a, a factual correction... I'm immediately harassed in the replies by like 19 Joe Rogan fanboys. And either he's got an army of bots or there are people who treat Joe Rogan. It's like I'm making it's like I'm calling out their father. It's so bizarre. Well, yeah. So, no. so I hope we never reach that level. It, it's it, but it's all it makes sense if you go back to that protection thing. It's all an identity protection thing. You know, I think the father thing is a good example. It's like if you're so tied to like defending this person who you don't really know, that's a sign you've lost your mind on the internet. Um, so that, that's all I would add there. And I would just, I, I would just say like, even with another sign, I got to interject here, another sign. And this is Joe Rogan. It's taking a dewormer parasite drug for a virus. That's not a parasite that has all kinds of known side effects, but, not taking a vaccine that's been studied. It's the same syndrome. All right, go on. So the only thing I'd add is you just got to be, you got to, in today's weird, strange world, you just got to have like a little skeptic, like antenna up. Don't get, don't have it go too crazy. But whenever you see these kind of things of, uh, of a uh, guru syndrome that we've listed off here and elsewhere, is just start asking those questions on like, well, is this a cult leader or is this person like have some self-awareness and in it for the right, the right reasons and just have that antenna up. I mean, I do that whenever I'm reading books, whenever I'm like listening to podcasts, all that stuff, it, I'm trying to sort out who's the real deal versus like who's pushing the contrarian buttons for the followers, et cetera, because you know, 
the reality is the incentives online, the incentives for podcast hosts or who TV hosts or whatever is to get clicks, views, listeners. Those incentives are not like accuracy and, you know, appropriate information. And you just, you just have to remember that whenever you're consuming anything. And I feel like producing, I do that all the time. I am always tempted to chase book sales, followers, Patreon members, podcast downloads. And I'm constantly asking myself, am I writing this? Am I saying this because I believe it to be true? Or am I writing this or saying this because I think it will elicit a certain reaction in other people? And if it's the latter, I don't do it. To me, that is what separates a pro from a non-pro, from a decent, intellectually honest thinker, from a non-intellectually honest thinker. It's normal to have that feeling of, oh, I want to say something because I know it's going to elicit that reaction. But if you consider yourself at all intellectually honest, at all pro, then you don't say the thing. And you also say the thing that might elicit a reaction you don't want, but if that thing is true, because sometimes people need to hear things that they don't want to hear. And maybe we're all just amusing ourselves to death, like Neil Postman wrote in the late 80s, and it's just a the scoreboard is relevance and Twitter followers and fame on the internet. And if that's the game you're trying to win, and the game you're trying to win is not intellectual honesty and consistency and rigor, well, then the incentives are aligned for a whole lot more bullshit. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. And one thing, the only thing I'd, I'd add there is for whoever you follow on the internet, just look for instances where they go against what their perceived tribe is. And if you can find those instances where they resist then and they go for accuracy, then that's a good indicator. If they seem to latch on to every single contrarian take possible, which you see in the the diet world, uh, suddenly all the hardcore like keto diet people are also like hardcore vaccine skeptics, COVID skeptics, which if you see those things aligned in contrarian world, right, that go against the norm, well, contrarians can be right occasionally, but if they're right on everything, then nothing in the world makes sense because nothing in the world probabilistic probabilistically can be not everything can be contrarian so right okay let's move on so from guru syndrome we're going to wearables and it's one more of it's a little bit of deconstruction and then we promise our last three items on this list will be building up and in constructing so we talked a lot about wearables this year they're not going anywhere if anything, it seems like there's just more investment dollars flowing into companies like Whoop, Aura, Fitbit, so on and so forth. 99% of podcasts in our genre on Apple or Spotify are probably sponsored by at least one of these devices. They are really trying to own the human performance well-being space. And by and large, you and I think that they're a waste of money at best for most people in most situations and harmful at worst. So before I let you opine, um, I don't have anything against wearing a whoop, a Fitbit, an aura ring, whatever the other trackers are. I'm not on their scientific teams. 
I don't know how much they've improved. All I know is that if I put on, again, that clear-seeing intellectual honesty hat, I have a very hard time believing that any algorithm that captures heart rate, skin temperature, respiration, now purports to capture menstruation cycle in women, like, is going to possibly be, even in the ballpark of accuracy, to give you a global readiness score. When readiness, well, is it readiness to deadlift? Is it readiness to write an essay? Is it readiness to run? Is there a difference between feeling good and performing good? Like, it's just impossible. So I think it's a sham. This is an example where I'm really proud of myself and of you because it'd be a lot easier for us to say that this stuff works and to have like legitimate sponsorship for this podcast right here. We'd make a fair amount of money. We're just not convinced it works. We don't, we fundamentally don't think that human readiness can be boiled down into an algorithm, particularly so we're not just throwing shade if the inputs that drive that algorithm are accurate. So like we know that risk trackers don't do a good job capturing heart rate. Well, if heart rate's a part of the algorithm, how can you trust the outcome? How on earth are you going to measure hormonal changes that come with stress or that come with um, a female cycle? Like it's impossible. Unless you're constantly monitoring someone's blood, saliva, emotional status. How are you going to capture mental health? Are these devices going to start having some algorithm that reads people's text messages and emails for signs of mental distress, because that impacts readiness. And the issue is that people might say it's just giving me data, but then you make decisions on that data, even if only subconsciously. So you see your readiness score is not great. Maybe you decide not to give it your all at work or in the workout that day, and you could have had a breakthrough. Or worse, you see that your readiness score looks great. You get all green lights, but you don't feel great, but hey, my device told me I'm great. So you go out and you crush yourself in a workout and then you tear your hamstring the next day or you burn out at work. So there's the real potential for harm. We both know multiple people in our life. So if you're listening and you think we're talking about you, we're not just talking about you. We're talking about you, plural, who have developed like legitimate anxiety disorders around sleep, around performance really good athletes that now will freak out if their readiness score isn't right, but feel kind of addicted to the data. I mean, these are real problems. And the last thing that I'll say is in my life, I don't know anyone who is truly world-class, elite, even national class at what they do that uses one of these devices. The end, at least from me. All right, Brad, go at it. I like this. But I'm not. I'm really trying to be restrained. And like, I get why someone would want to do this. So, so. And and I'm not against, to be clear, all tracking. Like when I first got into sports, I used a heart rate monitor that I wore on my chest all the time. It was really helpful until it got in the way. But it was simple. It was accurate. And it was giving me one input. It wasn't telling me whether I'm ready. So to be clear, my, it's like a two-level qualm, and we talked about this a few episodes back, and this is really good and important stuff, I think. The first is sometimes trackers make sense, sometimes they don't. They generally help you until they hold you back. Those are for simple input-output things. Heart rate, body temperature, watts on a bike. Those can be super helpful, again, until they get in your way. But these 
complex algorithms that, again, that promise to report global readiness, that is the hangup because they can't, particularly if the inputs are inaccurate. And even if all those inputs were accurate, heart rate variability doesn't capture psychological stress. It captures physiological stress. Um, I could go on and on. I think y'all get the point. It's like really trying to be very reductionist on something that's complex. Instead, big theme of accepting the uncertainty that human performance is complex. As Walt Whitman said, do I contradict myself? Sure. I am large. I contain multitudes. That's the same thing with the inputs to human performance. So why rely on some programmer who wrote a code that is going to try to give you a score for your performance that then a lot of people take to be their self-worth. Okay, now I promise I'm really done. Oh, man, you know, in my first book a long while ago, which is all on nerding out on, on running, the science of running, at the very beginning, I put, I called it my rules of everything. And a couple of those are pertinent here, which is one was, if I remember correctly, we overemphasize the importance of what we can measure. We ignore which we cannot. And I think that is one of the things that goes on if you've been around in the in the, the the exercise science world or the performance world enough, is whenever we get a new measurement in, we start going crazy about it. Happened with heart rate, happened with lactate, has happened with HRV. That doesn't mean those things don't matter or don't have some importance. They do, but what often happens is we overemphasize them. We hype them up until they rightfully fall back down into like the accurate data that they give us. And we appreciate what lactate tells us, what heart rate tells us, what HRV tells us. But we quickly realize that they are not the be all end all solution that we want. Things get even more complex when we if we use those measurements to go into, as Brad said, an algorithm which tells us some nebulous thing which we correlate to something else and then call it research backed for performance. And I think our entire thing here is to say, whoa, whoa, step back. What are you actually measuring? What is this actually telling you? And is this worthwhile or not? Or is it creating more anxiety around performance or, or not? You know, um, I've mentioned this before, but a good friend who has been a performance director for a variety of professional sports teams always tells me, he's like, whenever it's a black box algorithm, like I go into a highly skeptical mode. And if they tell me it's proprietary and they can't break down the algorithm, I don't get it for my team. And this is, again, professional sports teams across a variety of, of American professional sports. And I think I that's, think, oh, that, go ahead, Steve, sorry. I, you know, I think, I think that's, that's what we got to get down to. Like, what is it actually telling us and what, it, and does that improve or impact our life in a meaningful way? And I'm just not, I'm like you, I'm a big, I am the scientist of all science nerds. 
But when it comes to this stuff, I just know like the data, the research isn't there for all these algorithms to tell us something. How do I know that as well? Because our underlying our our underlying theories and understanding of stress, recovery, adaptation, allostatic loads is in its infancy where we don't even we we don't even have great theories which which combine it all together in a cohesive narrative let alone something that is like applicable in this standpoint maybe at some point we will but the reality is and you can go look at the research if you look at stress and we'll just call it we'll just call it general stress you'll see the you know six or seven different what they call defense cascades we can go down, which all elicit a different or all come with a different hormonal contributor, a different arousal level, um, a different like behavioral hit of approaching or avoiding stuff. It's complex as hell. And I've spent at this point years trying to like make sense and organize it in a way so that I can get something applicable up out of it. And if you go through that research again, with people tracking hormones and blood levels of stuff and saliva levels of testosterone and cortisol all to the nth degree. And then you come back to a little thing you wear on your watch and you're like, oh, this is going to tell me my stress levels. This is going to tell me my readiness score. I don't, I don't think so, man. We're not. There. And even at the most base level, there's so much nuance. Like a reduction in heart rate can be a sign of fitness, but it can also be a sign of overtraining. Well, it's the same with HRV, which is people like HRV can be a great tool. But if you look at the research, again, the actual scientific research, like there are points where increase in HRV can be good and bad. There are points where a decrease in HRV can be good and bad at the highest of high, like elite level athletes tracking this stuff and looking at this stuff, not with a wrist monitor, but accurate tracking of this this stuff. There's nuance there. And if your algorithm doesn't take into account the variety of factors which shift, whether it's good or bad, which we're at, again, at the very beginning of uh, understanding, then like it's it's not worth it. And that's where I think, you know, that's yep. where I think I live right now. In the research that our good friend Noel Brick has done shows pretty definitively that with minimal training, rate of perceived exertion or how someone feels is the most accurate indicator for how they ought to act that day, whether it's in sport or in life. So just to close this, as you were talking, I was thinking, in, in my opinion, there are a couple of metrics or kind of like wearable type tracking things that can be helpful if you know what to do with them. So one is a power meter on a bike. Two is a chest-worn heart rate monitor for aerobic exercise during workouts. Outside of workouts, probably not. Three is a thermometer. If you've got a fever, something's going on in your body. And four for sleep is an EEG. So if you're feeling like you're not getting good, and not a home EEG, which I'm sure people <laughs> use, but like an actual EEG interpreter by a neurologist. And that's it. Like that, th those are the only four that I can think of. Um, and of course, like a stopwatch can be helpful. Uh, counting hours that you're doing something can be helpful. 
But that's it. Those are those are them. And then, of course, rate of perceived exertion. So how you're feeling and then also realizing that you don't need to feel well to perform well. And just because you feel great doesn't mean that what's going on under the hood is great. So it's it's super complex in we can get to a seven or six out of 10 with some of those things that I just mentioned in really finely tuned perception. But to claim that we're getting to a 10 out of 10 is um, I use the word sham like it's a sham. OK, let's get positive, man. Let's get positive. Let's talk about motivation. Um, this was a really resonant topic for our audience this year in both our written material and our podcast. We get a lot of feedback. Our most downloaded episodes, they all tend to be on motivation. And I think the thing that we've talked about quite a bit um, and that is gaining more traction in the research world is the nuance and complexity behind motivation and the non-dual way that we like to think about it. So dualism is you have to feel good and positive and energized to perform well. Non-dual thinking is if you feel really positive and energized, yes, ride that wave. It's great. You probably will crush it. But if you don't feel really good and positive and energized, the best thing to change those thoughts and feelings is actually just to get going. So our good friend Rich Roll coined it mood follows action. In groundedness, I write, you don't have to feel good to get going. You have to get going to feel good. And in the literature, this is called behavioral activation, which says just that. Sometimes to activate, to get motivated, we actually have to do the thing first. It's a virtuous cycle. We think it starts with how we feel, but it often starts with how we act. And then we have the chance of feeling good. We increase our chance of feeling good. So maybe another way to think about it is it's decoupling positive thinking and feeling from performance. Now, does this mean that you ought to box yourself and push really hard if you feel like crap all the time? Absolutely not. That's a surefire way to burn out. But it does mean that, again, and I think part of the reason that so many people do this is because of the devices, you, you, you get into big trouble over monitoring the way that you think or feel and then letting that dictate everything that you do. Yeah, no, I think, again, you're spot on here. And I think the motivation thing, another piece of that that I think is important is motivation is going to wax and wane and that's okay right it's so it's okay to have it come and go you shouldn't expect to be highly motivated all of the time so like lowering the bar and just getting started um allows you to have spend more time in the arena and more time you know where maybe that 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 hit of motivation can can occur so the other thing that I'd add on this motivation piece that we've seen relatively recently is that it can shift. What you're motivated towards can shift as well. A lot of things, times I think we cement ourselves towards like, oh, this is what matters to me. This is what I'm motivated for. I want to be a runner or to run this. And what we saw over the pandemic is big disruptions to our life cause us to reevaluate things and maybe realize that like our interest and motivation um, have shifted or no longer align. And we might, might want to dabble in something else to use our kind of motivation towards, which is again, totally fine. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't expect to have the same motivation in the same direction 
you know, five years ago as you do right now, but often we think we should. Yep. And, and we need um, some excitement, some dopamine in our life, but not too much. Too much? You get on this heroic individualism, this rat race, always needing more, always craving more, become addicted to success, to stepping up the ladder. Too little, and you get what a lot of people feel during COVID lockdown, which is just like total Groundhog Day. So the best way to fine-tune motivation is to think of it like oscillating, like little jolts of excitement, super good, super important, constantly needing something bigger, not so great, but having just a flat line. I mean, that's death in like a healthcare setting, and it kind of can feel like death as so many people, I think, realize during lockdown. So um, I think that's the other point there. A motivation, which is, yeah, think mile markers, little victories, rituals, process, goals. Um, don't think I need to constantly get this big, excited, bright, shiny object because that's a slippery slope to, to burnout. Yep. hundred percent. Thank you. Spot on. All right. I'll let you start. Cause I realize I've done two diatribes on our last two topics. So, um, why don't you riff on our fifth big theme, which is thinking about time management in less of a Newportian, Cal Newport, time block planning, very specific way, which we're big fans of Cal and personal friends. So his work is good. But the complement to that is kind of defining what's the point of managing time to begin with. And we did an episode on this earlier this year that people just loved. Yeah, no, I think I think it, it comes to this like broader narrow idea, which um encapsulates much of our work when it comes to time management we narrow we go down into like okay i need my calendar set up to manage these things and like spend this much time block doing this deep work and the narrow matters but i think it also is important to like branch out and, and get the broad which is Instead of thinking like, how am I going to fit all of these things in my life? Stepping back and being like, what do I, what actually matters? Like, what, what do I want to spend my time actually doing? And I think in our podcast, we talked a lot about um, Oliver Berkman's uh, latest work, which is really, to me, his book was more about like putting things in perspective than actually managing time. Because if you can put things in perspective, then you can make that decision on like, okay, what matters? How am I going to fit this into my, into my world um, and uh, spend time that is quality and valuable? Yep. I think that that's a really good way to think about it. So the only thing I'd really add is like time management is life management because life and attention and time, they're all just different ways of pointing at the same thing or trying to measure the same thing. So before you go full on Cal Newport productivity, time block planning, so on and so forth, get upstream of that and identify what's important to you, 
where do you want your energy and attention to go? And then make sure that the downstream narrow stuff is aligned with that upstream stuff and try not to get so lost in the downstream stuff. A really practical example of this that I talk about with my executive coaching clients is I'm a huge believer and fan of scheduling blocks to do deep focus work. I used to, here's an area where I changed my mind. I used to tell people that they had to know what they were going to do ahead of time because otherwise they end up just filling that time with fire drills or email. Now I say you should have a list of five priorities in your life for deep focus work, but you don't have to choose which one until the moment it happens. And I think that's a really nice example of kind of taking the Cal Newport in the weeds time block planning and merging it with this bigger what's important to you, what's your energy level at a certain point of time, what are you feeling, and um, and trying to combine those two approaches. Because otherwise, if you truly schedule everything based on tasks, then there goes spontaneity and things can change and your mood can change. Whereas if you don't schedule anything, then yeah, like Twitter and checking email does encroach on everything. So it's kind of the the in-between approach, which is again... Schedule time, protect it, make it sacred, have a list of deep work activities that you want to do in that time, but don't force yourself to choose until you get there. And then constantly be reevaluating that list of priorities. Love it. I mean, I have at any given time, I have um, about three or four major kind of projects or stimulating things that I'm working on. And a lot of times I just kind of sit down and be like, okay, what's exciting like for today during this deep block. Same thing with my reading as everyone who listens to the podcast knows knows as I'm a notoriously slow reader. So I rotate two or three books based on what keeps me engaged and exciting. So it's still the protected time to read or do deep work is there, but the actual activity varies. So let's, let's end with our, our final item for 2021 reflection and bringing us into a better 2022. Brad, this is something you've spent a lot of time thinking about. We've spent a lot of time discussing. What is it? It is groundedness, how to be grounded in a frenetic world, world, how to rethink what it means to be successful, what it means to pursue excellence. Um, I'm going to shut up and let you talk about this because I've talked about it enough. It was our second most listened to podcast of the year. So thank you listeners. It still felt a little self-promotional to put it on our list today, but then literally just earlier as we are recording, JP Morgan puts out a annual list that gets a lot of traction kind of in like the intellectual finance world of their eight big books for redefining the future and uh, the practice of groundedness. Yours truly somehow was on that list. So, you know, our literary agent says I have to get better at owning this stuff. It still all feels very goofy to me, but um, it's a little bit of good external validation and reassurance that like there's a there there. Um, So Steve, like, I don't know. What do you think? Why groundedness? Why are people talking about it? Why are people listening? It's clearly not just because I said to. I don't have that many Twitter followers. What's going on here? I mean, I think it's a timely, timely piece. It's a timely book. It's a timely idea. Um, Because 
what we're and we talked about this a little with covid the world seems uncertain it seems a little threatening it seems chaotic and what do you need to do to be able to survive not only survive but thrive within that that kind of chaotic world you got to be grounded and i mean that with all sincerity like there are items which you outline brilliantly in the book which keep you from getting lost on the internet. They keep you from getting lost in the real world. They keep you um, where you have deep roots so that you can function. I, I, I almost see groundedness as a, an idea that allows you to move from playing prevent, prevent defense all the time to where you are secure in your sense of self and secure in where you stand and what matters so that you have the freedom to perform. And that's what it that's what I think people are listening to. Like we're tired of like being stuck and uncertain and like surviving and we want to get back to thriving. And I think, you know, your work and the podcast that we did to, you know, bring some clarity to that message. I think it helps people do that. So I think that's why it's, that's why it's resonating. That's why it's probably important for those JP Morgan people to read it because, you know, they're pushers probably on the edge of burnout and as it can help them. So I hope thousands upon thousands of them read it and send it to all their friends and tell them, I know 2021 was rough, but this book will make you better for 2022. Well, thank you, Steve. That was a very nice commentary on groundedness. And uh, I've got nothing to add. I'm, I'm glad that the book is resonating with so many people. Um, I'm glad that this term is entering the discourse. My wonderful editor, Nikki, said that the best thing that I'm going to be able to do with this book is to give people a language for something that they feel but can't yet express because once they have that language, then it becomes more tangible and real and they can do something with it. So um, I'm really glad to see that both heroic individualism, what I define as the problem and groundedness, what I define as the solution are actually becoming terms that people use to share what's going on in their lives their family life, their personal life, and of course, their professional life as well. So for all you listeners that have gotten the book, thank you. For all you listeners that haven't gotten the book, please do. If you're listening and you're listening to this and you're a listener, it's on Audible. If you are like me and Steve and you like an old-fashioned book to take notes in, uh, as of this recording, the book is currently 40% off on Amazon. You can also get it from your local bookshop. And if you really like the book and you found it valuable, please, please, please consider gifting it to friends, colleagues, clients, family members. Um, I'm biased, but well, I'm not biased because I'd say this about any good book, not just my book. I think a book is the best value possible, the best gift possible. Um, so, yeah. Share the wealth. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this recap of 2021. Hopefully it didn't, you know, depress you too much, but ended with some some hope, which is what we're all about. Hope for the future. Um, 
Thanks again for listening, for being a part of this podcast journey. And we really appreciate every, every one of you. Um, we appreciate all the feedback that you're giving us because we're just trying to put hopefully thoughtful, nuanced conversations into the world. If you disagree with us, that's fine. You're welcome to send us an email. We will reply, or I should say Brad will reply. I will just ignore my email inbox. But um, we appreciate it, and we're looking forward to a better 2022. So until next year, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.